Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So just last month in the little country of Latvia, a new law went live that allows you to register in a unique self-exclusion database. By registering, you would consent to being prevented from gambling for the next 12 months on land or online. Uh, Latvians can submit their request in writing to the regulator or in person or even by writing the gaming site. It even includes lotteries. The law reads, in part, the purpose of the register of self-denied persons is to protect the public interest and the right of natural persons to refrain from excessive gambling activities. We hear natural persons, we think natural persons who are sinful by nature, right? So it makes perfect sense. For that person struggling with a gambling problem, it's a voluntary opportunity to get help recovering a part of their lives they recognize is out of control. Might end up saving a marriage, uh, or a family, or even a career. You can't help but wonder how many people will give the government permission to help them cope in an area of their lives that needs some outside help, though. Like any addiction struggle, we tend to have a hard time admitting that we can't overcome it on our own. We have a hard time giving up our freedom to sin, even when we don't intend to sin. The old Adam, that sinful nature, and it's a powerful force. It never stops working to pull us away from God. But what if you could opt out of your freedom to sin in every area of your life? Gossip, laziness, covetousness, you know, wanting something someone else has, putting something, uh, anything, first in our lives before God. Uh, Would you sign up for something like that? It's what we strive for, isn't it? It's what we say. Anytime we think about what God did for us, that he sent his own son to suffer and die for us so that our sins could be forgiven and we could look forward to forever in heaven with him someday. The happy reunions with all our friends and family members who have already died in the faith and are waiting even now to welcome us home. Would that be worth giving up your freedom to choose wrong over right? Or what if you could pick and choose, you know, what areas of your life uh, you might ask to be regulated? What would they be? Uh, Interesting things to think about, right? It would be an interesting option to have, maybe. There's no doubt we're too attached to some things that just aren't too good for us, Uh, things we might not ask for help with, even if we did have the chance. Maybe you'd worry it would leave you on the sidelines in such a competitive world where rules are bent daily to get that contract or that guy or that girl or that promotion. Uh, It would be hard to live right when so much of the world isn't. But that's exactly what we're called to do as children of the Heavenly Father, right? Maybe we could live with uh, starting small and working up to bigger things. Now, Jake Knapp uh, felt that his smartphone was sucking too much of his, his attention. For him, it was kind of an occupational hazard. He worked as a, a design partner with Google Ventures. But in 2012, when he realized his phone addiction was encroaching on the time that would be better spent with his kids, he knew he had to do something. And he did, something that would shock a lot of people today. He deleted every app from his phone that distracted him. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. I know I said start small for a lot of you. Whoa, that's big. Uh, But uh, uh, it's a start, right? Listen to what he said. It was a huge relief. Although he he thought it was going to be like a short-term experiment, uh, those apps remained off his phone for the next six years. Sarah Lawrence, a graphic designer, decided to make her phone experience unpleasant. For two weeks, I used my iPhone screen in color, she said. 
And then for two weeks, I used it in grayscale, which is designed to be irritating. She found that grayscale reduced her usage and uh, eliminated a lot of her aimless scrolling. Did you even know you could do that? Turn your phone into black and white? Uh, you can. Jake and Sarah are, are uh, both examples of, of tech addicts who've tried to break their smartphone addictions. They dumped a lot of phone usage uh, to take back their, their minds and a good part of their lives doing it. We hear a lot about tech addiction these days, don't we? But it's really just one more thing in a long history of addictions that people have struggled with from the very beginning. Just one more way we sin by putting something first in our lives, by allowing ourselves to be distracted, you know, pulled away from that one thing, that one person who should actually be first in our lives. You know, God, Jesus. Most people with a smartphone problem uh, probably won't do anything to... to uh, to, to break those habits because they won't admit they have a problem in the first place. You know, one of my friends I was with on vacation accidentally dropped his phone into the porcelain receptacle in the bathroom. I'm not talking about the sink. Uh, I didn't ask him for all details, right? But you'd have to go after it, wouldn't you? I mean, half your life's on that thing. And they're, they're fairly water-resistant these days. I, I guess the question would be, if it happened to you, or maybe when it happened to you, uh, would it be just an unpleasant distraction? Or would it suddenly uh, uh, be a time for a full-blown panic in your life? Now, Paul's writing to the believers in Corinth because um, their walk away from his teaching hadn't thrown them into a panic at all. Didn't even generate much concern. Their new faith emphasized their freedom from the law. And the world was only too happy to help them indulge a little on the dark side. At the time Paul was writing this, uh, they simply hadn't realized how far away from God they'd moved. Their lives were filled with distractions, just like our lives are. Uh, Many of them working to complicate the simple message Paul had brought, the part of the gospel, Christ crucified, died, and risen again. The message of faith like that can't, uh, can't help but cause us to respond with a life of good works. Now, first century Corinth was a cosmopolitan Roman city. It was in Greece, but it was a Roman city. A diverse population of settlers, uh, travelers, uh, merchants, tradesmen, Jews, freed slaves, soldiers, uh, sailors, everybody was there. Uh, The Romans had destroyed the original Greek Corinth in 146 BC. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt it as a Roman colony almost 100 years later, I think 98 years later. Roman Corinth had a prosperous harbor and, of course, a wide variety of visitors. But as, of all the things that had changed Corinth as a, as a Roman colony, many more remained unchanged from its roots as a Greek trading center. It had always had a reputation as an immoral city, one where prostitution was widespread. Its people held a wide variety of superstitions and, and religious and philosophical beliefs. They placed a high value on philosophy there and would pay to hear some of the more famous philosophers of their time come and speak. Powerful and eloquent speakers... TV types, whereas Paul's style was a little more low-key. It would have been difficult and unlikely uh, of a place to to try and plant a Christian church, yet at the time of this writing, it had become one of Paul's most successful European congregations, but successful with an asterisk. Paul wasn't the only Christian leader to ever visit Corinth, and his wasn't the only message they'd heard uh, concerning Christ Jesus. Some of them were faithful to Paul's message, Some of them weren't. But even among those with the right message, people had become divided um, over their preference for the speaker. 
uh, it caused quarreling, caused dissension. Factions uh, had developed. They appealed to Paul to help restore the harmony that they'd once enjoyed, and it grieved him uh, to, to see their hearts no longer bound together in Christian love. It frustrated him to hear that there were even slogans there proclaiming, I follow Paul, or over here I follow Paulus, or, uh, Apollos, or I follow Cephas. You know, uh, following personalities had gotten in the way of simply following Jesus. Style points were distracting people from the real point. The Greeks worshipped wisdom practically, and Paul's message really didn't deliver the kind of worldly wisdom that they were used to. Um, Over against the man-centered humanist uh, lecturing from the Greek philosophers, Paul's Christian-centered gospel was really a new subject for the Corinthians. And his words were like a a new language to them. Uh, We have to be careful of the same thing. We throw around church words like uh, justification or propitiation or atonement. And people who aren't acquainted with the faith think they, they, their eyes glass over. My eyes glass over when somebody asks me what propitiation means to this day. You know? Rather than adapt his style to compete with these gifted orators, though, uh, Paul brought the simple message of Christ crucified and risen again. He preached simple, unpretentious sermons. He was no TV evangelist, nor did he try to be. He knew that his message was filled with the power of God not the power of Paul. And, and so uh, that's what turned back hearts to Jesus. And it didn't need an, an, an eloquent speaker to help. Sometimes I think less is better. And Paul wanted his listeners to focus on the crucified Christ, not Paul the great orator. He wanted them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And sort of, if you think about it, sort of takes the pressure off our efforts, doesn't it? Knowing that it's not you and I who move a person's heart to Christ. We facilitate the message, but the Spirit uh, works the conversion. Now, when you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, you really can't miss the fact that that he was a brilliant guy. He was well-educated. He was a gifted writer, a man uh, of exactly the kind of wisdom that the Corinthians might have appreciated. But he tried that route in Athens. He reasoned with the city leaders and with the philosophers there. And they came away wondering, this is in Acts chapter 17, what does this babbler wish to say? must have felt like Rodney Dangerfield. Now, for you youngsters, Rodney Dangerfield was a comedian back in the 70s and 80s, and he was always showing up on the late-night talk shows, uh, lamenting how he got no respect. Uh, and he did it with one-liners. Like he'd wear a tie, and he had kind of buggy eyes, and, and uh, he'd pull his tie, and, and, and he'd say, I told my psychiatrist that everyone hates me. He said I was being ridiculous. Everyone hasn't met me yet. Some dog I got too. We call him Egypt because in every room he leaves a pyramid. I bought a new Japanese car. You go like that. I turned on the radio. I don't understand a word they're saying. <laughs> kind of like dad jokes, right? Now, Paul got no respect there. What does this babbler wish to say? Paul sounded to them like he was speaking a whole different language. But it earned him an audience before the council at the Areopagus where, where, where the leaders met. And, and where he saw statues to all the different gods. And then one more marked to an unknown god, or the unknown god. Paul says, let me tell you about this god you worship as unknown. He's the god who made the world and everything in it. The Lord of heaven and earth. And he talked about creation with him. And he talked about the need to seek God. The need for repentance. Even the resurrection of the dead. Some of them mocked him. They made fun of him. But others listened and they believed 
and they asked to hear more. He learned that the very best way to reach these people wasn't by reasoning reasoning with them on an intellectual level. The best way for these people to embrace the gospel wasn't with their ears through his eloquence, but with their hearts through the simple message of the cross. He says in our lesson, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I kept it simple, he's saying. It was the Spirit who worked faith in your heart. He wanted no credit for their faith, but he knew that they'd been called to be salt and light to their world, just as you and I are to ours today. The need to, so the need to heal their divisions and, and bring them together is, again as one in Christ was no joke. Then he goes on to talk about the secret and hidden wisdom that believers have to impart. Now remember, he's writing to, to believers here, a young Christian church. Yet among the mature, he says, we do impart wisdom. A mature can mean a lot of things to people, can't it? You know, we can go around this room this morning, and this may work better with a secret ballot, but ask everyone to write down what age you think a man matures. And we get answers everywhere from puberty to to 30 to 50 to uh, most of them never do. (laughs) Okay? And you'd all be right. And nobody would know that that was your answer, right? But to Paul, mature means having been brought to faith. It's the point at which your faith stops resting on the wisdom of men and begins trusting in the power of God. God's power, in particular, is power to save by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's no secret to us. But to all those people you know, out there this morning who aren't in here, that were still resisting the work of the Spirit in their lives to bring them to faith, it might as well be a secret. Granted, it's always been a kind of an open secret. It's not like we get a a password at our baptisms or anything. It's more like the whole gospel is really right there in front of people to see, but the light bulb hasn't been turned on yet. That's the work of the Spirit. He works to overcome a person's inherent fallen nature. That tendency of our natural selves to turn away from all things God and resist his work in our lives. You know, the best minds of Paul's day hadn't discovered God's wisdom because it's this the secret wisdom. For all their searching for truth and the meaning of life, they never discovered it, let alone realize that God had decreed it before the ages. That just means it's the oldest wisdom there is, that it was there even before time as we knew it it began. You know, back in in the endless reaches of eternity, our gracious God decided you and I would be saved by faith in his Son. But that glorious fact remained a secret until the Spirit opened our hearts to it. The greatest minds of all time, the the people whose works have filled libraries and and guided nations and changed the course of the world sometimes, never guessed, never even dreamed of such a personal God who would never stop working in our lives to rescue us from sin and death. And it wasn't like God never told anyone. He promised Adam and Eve a savior while they were packing their spare fig leaves to move out of Eden after they disobeyed God. He talked with men like Abraham about his plan. And then he sent prophets and he made promises. Each one like a little piece of the puzzle. That seems clear as day to us looking back on it all as history. The messianic verses, the the threat of God's saving work that runs all through his word. A word that was inspired to be written for us by the Holy Spirit. None of the rulers of this age understood it, Paul says. If they had, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Who's he talking about? The people in the passion story of our Lord. 
uh, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests who, who put Jesus on trial on the night of his arrest, the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council who had accused him, Pontius Pilate, the governor who, albeit a little reluctantly maybe, sent Jesus to the cross, even though he didn't believe he was guilty of any capital crime. King Herod, whose only interest in Jesus was his hope to see him do some tricks. Uh, Judas, the disciple who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Any of them could have brought the train that was rushing Jesus toward Calvary to a screeching halt, but they didn't. But if they'd really known who Jesus was, the very Son of God, their long-promised, long-awaited Messiah, they would never have crucified him, Paul says. It was absolute proof that the leaders of Paul's age did not, would not, and could not know God's wisdom. When it came to understanding God's saving ways, they were the biggest fools of all. Now, for those of us who have been blessed with God's gift of faith through his word or the waters of baptism, we've matured. And with maturity comes responsibility. Now, we know what sin and guilt are. We know the depth of the wickedness of the heart of men. We know the answer to the problems of sickness and why the world never achieves justice and why death reigns and wars never seem to end. It's sin. And we know the answer to sin. And that, that keeping it simple is simply smart. That Christ crucified and risen again has overcome sin for us. That this problem-ridden world is temporary at best. That God has provided a better place a forever place, untouched and unspoiled by sin, a place waiting for all of us who've been brought to faith by God's Spirit. And we need to live as if we believe it so that others might see and believe. We need to be the salt that adds spice to the world and, and the light that leads others to Christ, the light that God has gifted us with, the light that can lead a whole world of sin to salvation. If we'll just let it shine. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.